I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, April 15th, 2013. If you haven't taken a moment to pray for the victims and family members of the Boston bombers, I don't know if it's bombers or bomber, but take a moment and pray. It's one of those days. They seem to come around so often nowadays that you almost become callous to them. Absolutely tragic. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God, to the Word of God, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work, open up our Bibles, and objectively verify whether or not what somebody is teaching is true or whether it is false. This is all objective work. It's not subjective, it's objective. It's done by comparing with an open Bible, reading what's being, you know, comparing what's being said to an open Bible and the passages read in context as to what they really mean. Now, like I said at the opening of the program, if you haven't taken a moment yet to pray for the family uh, members, victims of the Boston bombings, uh, please take a moment to do so. Because this is a theology and apologetics program and, you know, not your current events type of program, we will not be discussing the uh, the bombs that went off in Boston today at the Boston Marathon. Um, it, it, and the thing, you know, truth be told, it, I don't even like going on the air when you have big national tragedies or events like this happen. Uh, however, I understand that a lot of people listen via podcast and a lot of folks are, you know, a week, week and a half or two behind. And so they're not going to get this until long after uh, the event that you know has occurred and, and played itself out. Most people right now are glued to their television sets, and understandably so. This is absolutely tragic news. So I'm going to do my best to have a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith, although for a couple of reasons, the bomb, the bombing in uh, Boston being one of them, 
um, that an allergy season has struck. Every year, uh, I always have a, a rough allergy season, and uh, yeah, allergy season has begun. Uh, winter has passed, spring has begun, and grass pollen is going berserk. And as a result of it, now I'm <laughs> I'm in misery and trying to work my way through it. And yes, I've discovered the joys of the neti pot. I hate to even admit that on the air. Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I will do my best to stay on topic and stay engaged, uh, despite the fact that I do feel a little mentally pulled in several different directions today. We will begin today's edition of Fighting for the Faith with a Patricia King update. Did you know that Patricia King is uh, is, is now promoting herself as a life coach? Yeah, I know. Um, she is, and I'm sure you weren't aware of it until I just mentioned it, but um, I just became aware of it, and so we'll be passing along one of Patricia King's life coaching video tips um, for your uh, <clears throat> uh, enjoyment. And then what we'll do is we're going we're gonna to switch gears, and we're going to do an extended segment kind of on one topic. And uh, if I'm not sure if you've heard of the, uh, the rapper by the name of Shai Lin, but he apparently has caused quite a storm, a furor of sorts, out there in American evangelicalism because he's got a, a, a song that he just released on his new album called False Teachers, and he names names of false teachers. Well, we're going to play that for you today and let you hear uh, the song that's causing all the controversy. And um, and then we're going to take a look at, in you know, is part of the big bigger package of what's going on with that. We're going to take a look at uh, some of the response, uh, the response uh, that's uh, been noted of Paula White's son, you know, and his response to Shai Lin, as well as uh, a very interesting response from Brian Head Welch. Now, um, it, yeah, that's just, most of you are going, I don't know who that is. Well, Brian Head Welch, I think he used to play in a band called Corn and had a very public uh, you know, coming to Jesus, uh, becoming a Christian kind of conversion. And he has over 100,000 uh, people who like him on uh, Facebook. And he made some very interesting comments regarding Shai Lin's song that I think are worth passing along and correcting biblically. So what we're going to do is try to take an objective look rather than a subjective look at the controversy. And we'll also be hearing from uh, Paula White. I'll be playing for you some uh, sound bites of things that Paula White has said that we have documented in the past here at Fighting for the Faith to objectively determine whether or not Paula White is uh, a false teacher. And uh, then, um, time permitting, I, I intend to get to this, uh, there's a great article that was sent to me by a listener entitled, Is Bibliolatry Possible? Is Bibliolatry? That's where you take the Bible and make it an idol, apparently. This is one of the major claims by postmoderns, emergent liberals, and those, oh, you, you, you people, you conservative Christians, you've turned the Bible into an idol. You're guilty of Bibliolatry. And so... Hopefully, I'll have the opportunity to read that. And then we have two good sermons today. Since we last week was nothing but our bad Easter sermon contestants. And by the way, it's kind of a dead heat between uh, David Ashcraft and uh, Roger Archer as to uh, who's going to win the title this year, um, it, which I think is a tough choice. I, 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 I know who I voted for, but I will not divulge my vote. But I got to tell you, it's a tough choice between those two. And uh, what we're going to be doing in today, we're going to be listening to do two good sermons. The first from Pastor Brent Kuhlman of Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. 
And his sermon is entitled Suffering for Christ's Name. And I think this is a very timely and, dare I say it, prophetic message, one that we need to needs to be broadcast to a wide audience and for you to consider suffering for Christ's name. And then sermon number two, a good sermon also, will be a Pastor William Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California, and a sermon that he just delivered uh, a few weeks ago on Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 20. And the name of his sermon is Either Way You Are Dead, Either way you are dead again it, it, i the reason i need to do the good sermons is because after doing a week of nothing but bad easter sermons you kind of need to clean the brain out if you know what i mean and uh let's see here oh and i have an announcement that uh, today too uh today uh, i announced this on facebook and twitter and the the major announcement is this is that i will be in palo alto california on saturday may 4th at Trinity Lutheran Church. You notice we have three Trinities here. We've got Holy Trinity, Trinity, and Trinity. So at Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California, on Saturday, May 4th, and I will be delivering you know, basically a series of, of lectures that together become one big lecture entitled Defending the Reliability and Authority of Scripture in the Postmodern Church. Defending the Reliability and Authority of Scripture in the postmodern church, the uh, the good folks out there at Trinity Lutheran have invited me to come out and lecture there, and I wanted to take the opportunity to go back through and take a look at can we trust New, Te- New Testament documents? And what I want to also bring to bear um, in this lecture are some recent um, some recent evidences that have come up to de- to defend the reliability of the New Testament documents. Um, through you know, th- through some of the recent scholarship that's been published within the past, I would say nine, you know, not even nine, you know, seven to uh, seven to eight years that a lot of people haven't lectured on. I've heard several good lectures over the years, uh, you know, in the recent years on this, and so I want to bring you up to speed on some of the more recent discoveries that really help buttress and defend uh, the, uh, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and also cast some serious doubts as if there were uh, as if it's even more possible to cast serious doubts on the authentic uh, the 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 authenticity of the claims regarding the gnostic gospels the so-called gnostic gospels found in the nag hammadi library and so um you know this will be a, a good series of lectures it'll be more apologetic oriented and uh, we will be recording them and uh, and hopefully making them available here at Fighting for the Faith. But uh, you know, if you if you have the opportunity, you live anywhere near Central California, since uh, you know my lecture will be in Palo Alto, was in the southern part of the San Francisco Bay area, so it's kind of in the South Bay portion there. Um, you know, if you're if you're in you know wine country. Uh, maybe a little bit north of there or you know, Central California. If you want to make the trip up from Southern California, you can. Again, it's May 4th. The uh, doors open at 9 in the morning. The lecture, the first uh, part, portion of the lectures begins at 9.30, and uh, we'll have an hour break for lunch. So we'll go from 9.30 to noon. We'll have an hour break for lunch, and then we'll go from about 1 o'clock to ba- somewhere between 2.33 o'clock, depending on how long it takes me to finish up that last lecture. So uh, if you have an opportunity to come out there, admission is free. We will be taking a free will offering, although, um, again, I'm a modern uh, – how does, how does uh, 
Rick Warren saying, a monergist. Yeah, that's how he says it. So, yeah, I'm a monergist. And uh, <clears throat> that's a joke. But um, And so I don't believe in free will, at least not when it comes to the things of God. So, uh, But we will be taking a free will offering, even though there's a paradox that, uh, that occurs whenever I use that uh, word. So with all of that... Um, I think it is time for us to dive into the program proper. Make yourself comfortable. Uh, Fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience. And with that, here we go. So are you looking for a, a, you know, a life coach? Somebody that can coach you to success and reaching your maximum purpose and things like that? Well, if so, well, then you're in luck. And the reason why you're in luck is because, well, Patricia King has just recently announced that she is now into the life coaching business. And so here is uh, audio from a recent uh, post from XP Media by Patricia King entitled Mentoring Moments, okay, because she's a life coach, called Planning Well Creates Successful Action. So uh, consider this to be just a public service that we're offering to you, our listeners here at Fighting for the Faith, ways in which you can help make your life more successful. Here is uh, uh, um, false prophetess and life coach, Patricia King. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Mentoring Moments. My name is Patricia King. I'm a professional uh, life coach and I love helping people. See- She's a professional life coach their dreams fulfilled. In fact, if you would like uh, some more information about our uh, coaching tools, you can go to patriciakinglifecoach.com. But today, I want to talk about the importance of a good, healthy plan of action. Yeah, like any good life coach, you, you know, would tell you, you need to have a good, healthy plan of action. And maybe we can throw in some Bible twisting there to help verify and prove that it's important to have a good, healthy plan of action from the newly, uh, <laughs> well, how, how, is she licensed? How do you become a professional life coach as opposed to an amateur life coach? So is a professional life coach an amateur life coach who's lost their um, amateur status? I, you, know. you know, we can have a well-defined dream and desire and a, it might be just a great goal to accomplish. But if we don't have an action plan to implement that, it'll only remain a dream. It'll only remain a desire. Do you know that God himself not only had a desire, but he had a good plan of action. It was already in place. God's plan for us, for example, to be redeemed from our sin was a a heart's desire that he had from before the foundation of the world. And he put into place a plan of action that included the creation of man. And when man fell, he put this plan of action into place. He had it all mapped out that he would create a covenant. He would introduce that covenant in the Old Testament. He would then fulfill it through his son and bring man into a complete redemption. He had a timeline for that plan of action. Now, here's the weird part about this is that she's not actually proclaiming uh, salvation and all that type of stuff. She's only using it as an illustration. So all of the details regarding the plan of salvation, if you would, are being used here as well, an illustration to a bigger point. They're not the point. No, no, no. See, because God makes plans and he puts plans into place. You can follow his example just like he did, you too, if you want to be successful in seeing your dreams come to in 
you know, to fruition and, and to occur, you need to plan the way, well, God plans. And so we see God over and over and over in the scripture, giving us the plan of action, showing us what he was going to do to implement um, what was needed to bring his desire to pass. So that's an example for you. If you're going to be successful in life and if you're going to develop your your character. I mean, seriously, who takes the entire plan of redemptive history or you know, God's plan of salvation and uses that as just a means to an end, and a, you know the the end of well, you can use that as an example and see you can plan and and you can see your dreams come true the way God did. Who trivializes the gospel like this? Well, apparently Patricia King does, but I mean that's what this is doing. It's trivializing the entire plan of salvation and redemptive history. Your nature in God and implement things that will fulfill your life's destiny. You need number one, a really good, well defined dream or desire, a goal to accomplish, but then you also need a plan of action. In other words, what will it take? What considerations do you need to look at to bring that plan to pass, to bring that desire to pass? For example, Let's say that, that you wanted to start up a, a social media network or a social media company helping people manage their social media. Maybe I would want to start a social media company helping people you know, be warned, helping warn people about false teachers and those who would exploit them with false doctrine and false prophecies and stuff. This sounds like a good idea. I, I think I need to – okay, so that's my well-defined dream or vision. Um, what do I, what's the next step? Let's say that that's your dream. Yeah. That's your desire. Yeah. I, I want to warn people about, well, people like you. Then you have to sit down with your greatest mentor and coach of all, the Holy Spirit, and say... So you want me to sit down? Where do I have this sit-down meeting with the Holy Spirit, who's my greatest mentor and coach of all? Holy Spirit, would you show me what I need in place to make this dream come to pass? Okay, so I need to sit down and have a conversation with the Holy Spirit saying, Holy Spirit, listen, I have this plan. I got this big dream, this destiny that I really think I need to pursue. And that is, is I want to warn the world about false teachers like Patricia King. What do you think I should do to, you know, to, you know, what should be my next step in helping to see this dream come to fruition? And show me some timelines. What will it, it, it take as far as timing to get these things in, in, into place? So Yeah, so realistically, how long before somebody like Patricia King runs out of money and goes out of business and then no longer makes videos as a result of me accomplishing this dream or vision? I, I really would like a timeline. In this case, you might need, uh, number one, uh, you might need some clients. How are you going to get those clients? You might need certain skills. Maybe you don't have them yet. What kind of training is it going to take for you to get those in place? Well, I got listeners who listen to Fighting for the Faith, and I'm, well, I'm, I'm formally trained in Christian apologetics and theology, biblical languages and things like that. So I think I'm, tr I'm well qualified to see this dream come to fruition. What kind of things will it take for you to set up a company? If you don't have a company set up, put that in your plan of action. Maybe a, a really, really thin budget. <laughs> <laughs> the ability to, yeah, never mind. You know, go on legal Zoom or find someone to help you set up the company. Get some advice on the best way to set that up. Yeah, by the way, folks, if you're looking for a real life coach, don't go to Patricia King. 
You might need a website to advertise. Maybe the reason why she's doing, she's moonlighting now as a life coach is maybe the things over there at uh, XP Media are not paying the bills. Hmm. To services. You might need a marketing plan on how you're going to make people aware of your services. You might need a, a, an, an action plan, a business plan in place that shows you what kind of finance is going to be needed. Yeah, so I need, I need a business plan that will explain the finances necessary to topple uh, the false teaching of people like Patricia King and others. Got it. What you're going to charge your clients, um, what kind of services you are going to offer and what you're t- yeah isn't this great she's giving me all this advice on on how to see my dream come into fruition and that would be the dream of seeing her no longer teaching publicly ever and growth is going to be those are things that you know i like just jotting everything down that comes to my mind when i sit down with holy spirit when i'm starting a new endeavor and say what do i need to make this successful where do i get you know my first clients uh what do i need as far as as a building or a venue to work out of as far as a social media um company you might only need just one room in your house at first and what kind of um uh, equipment do I need? In that case, it might be just a computer and a... Sp- yeah, the kind of equipment I need is the kind that works. It, it needs to be functioning. Got it. Smartphone. That might be all the overhead you need. And so write down what is needed. Whenever I have a new vision that God gives me for... for the- oh, no ministry i always count the costs and i do a project proposal and i think of everything that is you do a project proposal with the holy spirit okay needed for that particular project and what the timelines are what are the potential obstacles think them through ahead of time and have a plan of action for implementing the victory over them even maybe a plan of action for implementing the victory over them Okay, we've just crossed the line into sane, uh, from sane life coaching to really creepy, weird life coaching. Being ready for them before they even come. How are you going to raise the finance to get what you need to get started? Are you going to get investors into the company? Or are you going to um, ask maybe a kingdom partner to loan you some money uh to begin with and what are the terms of that and so think through everything very carefully put a plan of action into place and then do it you might want to get some good counsel into a plan of action i always like once i've got a plan together to bounce off of other people that i trust who have good business minds who have good management minds who are have you ever thought of like bouncing your theology off of somebody who's actually orthodox you know has a good theological mind good administrators to say tell me everything that's wrong with this vision put you know an eye on or a dot on every i and cross every t for me make sure that i'm not missing anything make sure i'm not not missing a consideration of something important or even something that's intricate detail you know in the counselor or in the multitude of counselors there is wisdom so get input into your vision let people troubleshoot and don't get all emotional about good troubleshooting because it'll save the day and it'll save you a lot of time uh, necessary at the end that's just okay thanks so yeah there you go that's uh, one of patricia king's new infomercials and apparently she's going to be having more of these mentoring moments over at the xpmedia.com website which makes you wonder again why is she moonlighting as a life coach and boy is she like the last person i would ever go to for life coaching all right 
Moving along, I don't have any update music for this. Well, because we're going to be playing some music for you. And uh, just, you know, to kind of set this up, what I'm going to do before the break is I'm going to play for you the song that's causing all the hubbub out there. There's a lot of hubbub over this song. And it's called False Teachers, and the S's are dollar signs, and this is by the uh, rapper by the name of Shai Lin, S-H-A-I-L-I-N-N-E, and uh, this is from his latest album entitled Lyrical Theology, um, I think it's part one, and... Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and play it in its entirety. It's available for free all over the Internet. So um, if you'd like to find it on the Internet, you can. And, of course, you can purchase his, uh, his entire album over there at iTunes. But here's Shai Lin, and I'm going to play it here at, on this side of the break. When it's done, we will go right into our uh, first break. So I'll, I'll tell you right now, if you want to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions, do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Here is Shylin's False Teachers. We'll discuss the hubbub about it on the other side of the break. Here we go. One, two, one, two. Yeah. Special dedication to my brothers and sisters on the great continent of Africa. The saints in Malawi, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Zimbabwe. Don't be deceived by what America's sending you, yeah. man. Let me begin. While there's still ink left in my pen, I'm set to contend. For truth, you can bet will offend. Deception within. The church, man, who's letting them in. We talked about this years ago. Let's address it again. Yeah. And I ain't really trying to start beef. But some who claim to be part of the sheep got some sharp teeth. And cats get mean when you criticize them. But Jesus told us Matthew 7, 16. We can recognize them. And God forbid that for the love of some fans. I keep quiet and watch them die with their blood on my hands. So there's nothing left for me to do except to speak to you in the spirit of Jude 3 and 2 Peter 2. And I know that some will label me a Pharisee because today the only heresy is saying that this heresy. I'll dare to be specific and drop some clarity on the popularity of the gospel of prosperity. Turn off TVN. That channel is overrated. The pastors speak focused statements financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people. Teaching that camel squeeze through the eye of a needle Ungodly and wicked Ask yourself, how can they not be convicted? Treating Jesus like a lottery ticket And you're thinking they're not the dangerous type Cause some of the statements are right That only proves that Satan comes as an angel of light This teaching can't be believed without a cause The liars, you can achieve a crown without a cause And I hear it all the time when they speak on the block Even unbelievers are shocked how they're fleecing the flock It should be obvious then Yeah, I'll explain why it's sin Peep the Bible, it's in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 it talks about how the desire for riches has left many souls on fire in stitches, mired in ditches. Tell me, who would teach you to pursue as a goal? The very thing that the Bible says will ruin your soul, huh? Yet they're encouraging the love of money to make it worse. They've exported this garbage into other countries. My heart breaks even now as I'm rhyming. You want to know what all false teachers have in common? What? It's called selfism, the fastest growing religion. They just dress it up and call it Christian. Don't be deceived by this funny biz. If you come to Jesus for money, then he's not your God. Money is. Jesus is not a means to an end. The gospel is he came to redeem us from sin. And that is the message forever I'll yell. If you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. Talk to him. Joel Osteen. Let him know. Crackle Dollar is a false teacher. Well, Benny Hinn is a false teacher. I know that 
Ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, and thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite televangelist. And that is a good thing. Trust me, it'll save you lots of money and save you an eternity in hell. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, when you get there. Right in the middle of the homepage, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Click on the join our crew button if you'd like to join our crew. It's only $6.95 every month in order to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, now, as you can imagine, that wonderful song by Shylin entitled False Teachers, and I think it's brilliantly done, pulls no punches, says it the way it is, even backs up his what he's saying 
from Scripture. Just a fantastic song. I mean, my hat's off to guys like Shailin, uh, Jovan McKenzie, and others. In fact, I'm hoping to have Jovan McKenzie on the program later this week. Keep you posted on that. But um, as you can imagine, after releasing that, there's been quite a stir within American evangelicalism regarding this. And I'm going to give you two examples of some pushback on uh, Shai Lin's uh, song. And and then we're going to spend a little bit of time in the biblical text to take a look at uh, at the right way and, and as opposed to the wrong way of determining whether or not somebody is a false teacher. So with that, we need to go first to the Christian Post. From the Christian Post, notice the redundancy there, the headline reads, Paula White's son comes out to her defense after calling call out in false teachers' songs. This is by... Leonardo Blair of the uh, Christian Post, and the story reads, Brad Knight, the manager and son of popular televangelist Paula White, shot back in defense of his mother on Wednesday at uh, at controversial rapper Shy Lin, who called out White and several other popular televangelists as frauds in his new song, False Teachers. By the way, the S's are dollar signs, which I think is very appropriate. In an open letter to Lin, published on Wade O Radio, Knight noted that the accusations against his mother hurt him, and he was, and the claim was unjustified. Now, um... Listen, okay, <clears throat> yeah, I understand that uh, Paula White's your mother, but in a situation like that, you're going to have to actually turn the emotions off and open up your Bible because here's the thing. Whether or not somebody is a false teacher has nothing to do with whether or not they're your mom or not or your dad or not, has nothing to do with your feelings. It has everything to do with an objective biblical standard. And so what we're going to do here is we're, you know, in, in momentarily, I'm going to be playing for you some audio that we have here on file here at Fighting for the Faith from previous episodes of Fighting for the Faith where we document some of these stranger teachings of, well, Paula White to see if whether or not Shylin was justified or unjustified in saying that Paula White is a false teacher. Okay. However, her son writes, quote, One would think that hearing these accusations all my life would make me numb to their stings, but that is not the case. After all, it's my mother. That is, this is the woman who birthed me, nurtured me, raised me to love Jesus, raised, uh, prayed for me when I didn't, and patiently led me when I finally embraced the truth of his loving sacrifice, wrote Knight. Quote, so when I hear a fellow Christian leader whom has never had a conversation with me or my mother call her a false teacher, I wonder what false teachings I myself have been inculcated with since I, more than anyone else on the face of the earth, have been most exposed to her teachings, he added. Well, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Knight, I'll be happy to explain some of that to you. Again, we're going to just do this objectively, turn off our emotions and take a look at it objectively, biblically. Um, But he then uh, the story goes on, he says, he goes on in his letter to dismiss the song as pure cannibalization without biblical Precedence, pure cannibalization without biblical precedence, which actually shows that he doesn't know his Bible, nor does he know church history. 
and argued that instead of writing a song publicly criticizing his mother, Lynn should have tried reaching out to the televangelist. The Bible instructs us Christians how to handle faults in Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17. Actually, that is not, that is not the right passage to go to. Um, in fact, let me copy this real quick, and I'll put, paste this into my biblical program that I use here on, the, uh, on my computer and uh, point out to you what's wrong with it. Okay, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, starts out this way. If your brother sins against you. Ah, so yeah, what's going on here in Matthew 18 is is basically Christian to Christian. This is this is not giving the remedy uh, for dealing with a false teacher. In fact, we're going to have to take a look at other biblical passages to learn what to do there. But this is talking about you know, hey, you know, in your day to day life, you have a Christian brother that you know who has wronged you. He has sinned against you. You go and tell his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, in the case of public teaching, um, the two or three witnesses um, category, uh, well, actually, we don't much need that anymore because... Uh, we have the internet and we have recorded television programs. And so when, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, when the, uh, when the heretic speaks for himself or herself, um, that's firsthand evidence. You don't need two or three witnesses at that point. You just need to play the recording of what said heretic said to establish whether or not that teaching is true or false. Okay. But again, this is talking about brother to brother, an incident where somebody has sinned against you or has wronged you, how you remedy that. If he refuses to listen to everybody, the whole church, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him uh, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Matthew 18 is not giving the remedy for how to deal with false teachers. Instead, if you want to know what the remedy for false teachers is, you have to look at someplace like, uh, well, the epistle to Titus. All right. The epistle to Titus chapters one and two. All right. Let me, in fact, I'll start at verse nine of chapter one of Titus. It says, talking about an overseer, this would be a pastor. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, here's the irony of it. Okay. Um, Paula White claims to be a pastrix. She does not meet the biblical qualification for pastor. She is clearly in sin. That's irony number one. She doesn't meet the biblical qualifications of a pastor. So who is she to be claiming that she's a pastor when she's not biblically qualified? But here's the deal. So pastor, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradicted. Did you catch that? Rebuke those who contradicted. That's the remedy biblically for dealing with a false teacher. For there are many insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. This is actually one of the classic ways in which you can tell whether or not you're dealing with a false teacher because they're teaching it for shameful gain. And that does not mean somebody who says, you know, would you support our ministry? That's not what I'm talking about here. Uh, they've been making merchandise of people, all right? And we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. Now, one of, a Cre- uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them 
sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So here's the problem. And by the way, uh, false teachers and those who work with them often, 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 often appeal to Matthew 18 as if it basically says, you should never have called me out and called me a false teacher in public because Matthew 18 says to come to me privately and you didn't come to me privately. <laughs> you're being a, a mean head and, and you're not being Christian. Well, no, they're twisting the Bible. Okay. Think about it this way. If we had to go and meet privately with false teachers before we could say anything publicly against them, um, where would we get? You see, the thing is, false teachers speak publicly, and, and the Bible tells you to rebuke them, and that rebuke needs to be public. And that that's the kind of the whole point. Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. So we're not to go and, and meet privately and, you know, wring our hands and go, go, oh, Mr. or Mrs. False Teacher, you know, I'm coming to you privately because Matthew 18 says to come. No, it does not. Matthew 18 says to go privately to somebody who has wronged you personally. This kind of sin needs to be addressed publicly. Shylin hasn't done anything wrong. And the fact that Paula White's son would appeal to Matthew 18 and then use it to bludgeon Shylin shows that, um, well, he doesn't know how to rightly handle God's word. So let me continue with this quote, though. The Bible instructs us Christians on how to handle faults in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, telling us to go to one another with our grievances. Instead, you have chosen to air your grievances to an audience that will already agree with you. You are really do. Are you really doing right in protecting the sheep? He asked, or are you creating more embitterment, more division and misunderstanding based on faulty premises and biases that you display openly? Yeah, now, I, I, that's just one example of the kind of blowback that's going on here. So Shai Lin is being, <clears throat> well, at this point, attacked publicly. And he's the evil one for daring to call, well, you know, Paula White a false teacher and other things like that. Which then leads me to um, another noteworthy comment made on Facebook and this comment was made on Facebook Facebook by uh, the guy who was formerly with Corn. His name is Brian Head Welch. And here's what he said. Shailen, you're never going to be trusted with tons of money to help brothers and sisters in Africa run in your mouth and throwing stones. And so he links, uh, yeah, Brian Head Welch links to the um, the Christian Post story. And so basically trying to take Shailen to task. And then Brian Head Welch goes on to make more comments regarding um, Shailin. And this, I think, is rather interesting and shows that Brian Head Welch doesn't know his Bible. Here's what he said. <clears throat> All you people with your mean-spirited judgment are a cancer in the body of Christ and an accuser. You don't understand. You will talk smack on people who are doing tons of good and miss your high calling by flapping your lips in judgment of others. Most of those uh, ministers are good people who love the Lord and are doing way more good for Jesus than you ever will. Are they perfect? No. So, yeah, so get this. The people calling out the false teachers, well, they're a cancer in the body of Christ, according to Brian Head Welch. Now, we're going to test this claim from our Bible. 
Is it the false teachers who are a cancer, or is it those who are calling out the false teachers who are a cancer? And notice that his appeal then is that those people are good people. They love the Lord and all this kind of stuff. This is a subjective claim. Well, again, when it comes to determining whether or not somebody is a true teacher or a false teacher, what is not needed is emotion. What is needed is objective verification with an open Bible and quoting the person in context to see if what they're teaching is true doctrine or false doctrine. Whether or not somebody is a true teacher or a false teacher is not determined subjectively. It is determined determined objectively based on what the Bible says in context. So with that, I'm going to play for you some statements made by um, uh, Paula White, who's uh, the person we're kind of focusing on here. We've, we've covered the other teachers, Creflo Dollar and, and uh, you know, Joel Osteen and others here at Fighting for the Faith. Since I was focusing in on the Paula White ones, let's take a look at Paula White's statements and some of her teaching. By the way, if you want more, you go to fightingforthefaith.com and type in Paula White in our search box there at, the, at our website, and you can pull up all of the different programs where we've covered the false teaching of Paula White. But here is what I would consider some of the quintessential uh, false teaching of Paula White. This was from a couple years back, from her teaching on the seven places where Jesus bled for us, and she had in guest uh, a guest in studio, and this would be Larry Huck, and uh, well, listen to uh, these statements and see if you can make them square with Scripture. Here we go. We understand, according to Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest, Absolutely. and he's the first of many brethren, which means I now come into a priestly anointing, so I now can... Say that again, because I they now- don't get I now come into a priestly anointing. Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. He is not. I'm a son of he's God. He's the first fruit. You, you're the, he's the first fruit. He's the firstborn of many. Now, did you, I, did you catch that? Jesus Christ is not the only begotten Son of God. And Paul White doesn't say, you know, he is, because Scripture says that. Uh, for instance, uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, monogenes, there in the Greek, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Well, listen again. Many brethren, which means I now come into a priestly anointing. So I now can... Say that again because they don't get it. I now come into a priestly anointing. Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. He is not. I'm a son of God. He's the first fruit. He's the first fruit. He's the firstborn of many. Can I share one? Jesus said, don't pray to me. Okay, yeah, that, this is the next quote. Jesus, this is Larry Huck saying, on Paula White's program, Jesus said, don't pray to me. Mm-hmm. I'll not go to the Father for you. You go to the Father because that curtain is open and my blood has atoned for you. Go on in. The water's fine. And here's what's so crucial about that. The pattern that was showed to us and demonstrated is we understand now, yeah, we have access right to the Holy of Holies because of the blood of Jesus, because right. the pattern. But when that priest sprinkled that, what he was doing, is taking dominion authority over those seven areas. And that's what we're saying. You're living in the generation of what I call throne room ministry. That throne room ministry is the fullest function of prophet. Priest and king, yeah. 
Uh, let me play a little bit more from this particular program. So in just in this one program, we have Paula White and Larry Huck denying that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, saying that we shouldn't pray to Jesus. And then let's see if they actually fit with the other uh, description of false teachers that are basically in it for the money. Let's take a listen to a longer segment here from you know this uh, program on you know the seven police, uh, places where Jesus bled for us pull some folks over woo, you know and and puts kids on the back that's where i'm from and when i got saved unfortunately really we've never missed our tithe because right. i've never missed a tithe never made a pledge and didn't pay it always gave but never saw prosperity until i learned the third place that jesus shed his blood to break the curse of poverty and, and i want to hit that because poverty is it a is a curse, curse. absolutely you know and, and so jesus you know, one of the places where jesus bled on you know broke the curse of poverty do you know any passages of scripture that say this? People have to understand this so much more. There is not a money problem. First off, there's more money in this world. If it was equally distributed, the government released something in 19, I think it was 78, that right. said equal distribution to everybody would be a multimillionaire. I think it's up to 12 to $14 million for every person alive. It's not a money problem. No. It's a distribution and, and problem why, of understanding what is our covenant. This is why the devil does not want somebody like you or myself or somebody else teaching on prosperity. Because once we get the wealth of the wicked in the hands of the righteous, which is going to happen for the coming of the Lord, we can change the world. We need. So uh, the devil doesn't want them preaching on prosperity. So here is Paula White and Larry Huck openly preaching the prosperity heresy to break that curse of poverty and i'm going to say this because money is not evil money no. is not good and it's not no. bad money's just currency it just flows it's an amplifier it's an amplifier there you go it says that a fool is destroyed by money well if you are drunk before you have money you're going to be a bigger drunk if i was a drug addict with i was a drug addict without money right if I, god hadn't set me free i'd just be a bigger drug addict with money with money and jesus came to break the curse, curse of, of poverty. poverty. Again, what passage of scripture says that Jesus came to break the curse of poverty? Here's here's one. I love teaching this because I want every person in my church involved with our ministries. I want them owning their own home. There you go. I want them debt free. I want them driving a car that's main color is not Bondo. The <laughs> God wants, you know, God made beautiful homes. And he says, I've made a covenant with you that you may dell in them, that you'll build them because well, he's given us power to gain wealth. The third place that Jesus, because I never, I, I keep, I don't, I don't get there. The third place Jesus shed his blood was with the crown of thorns. Mm -hmm. Now we talked. Now watch what he's going to do here. He's going to, he's going to basically kind of sort of correctly pick up on the curse associated with the ground and, and associate that with the crown of thorns. That is a true type and shadow, but he's going to basically turn it into, Oh yeah, those thorns. That's, that's the curse of poverty that Jesus took upon himself. So he took it upon himself and broke the curse of poverty about this before where God said, my people destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Why are God's people? We keep sowing, we keep giving, we keep tithing and we're not seeing that harvest that is supposed to be ours. We know it's in the Word of God. Where is it? Uh, I shared this in the book that when I was living in, in Oregon, um, I had horses there, and I plowed the field. I sowed this grain in the field. The grain started to grow, but all of a sudden, the weeds 
overtook the grain. So I called the guy on the seed and I said, this doesn't work. He said, what, what do you mean? I said, I got more weeds. I got no, I got no seed left, no right. grain left. He said, did you kill the weeds before you planted the seed? And I said, I didn't even know I was supposed to do that. That's now this, by the way, he's now talking about money. So, you know, he, here's the problem. I mean, have you been tithing to a televangelist like Paula White and God hasn't given you a bazillion dollars yet? Well, the reason why is because you forgot to kill the weeds before you sent in the seed. That would be the money. Oh, man, I totally overlooked that. It's the same thing with prosperity. The, the word redeem means to be brought back. In the Garden of Eden, there was no poverty, there was no hunger, there was no need of food stamps, there was no debt. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey. And by the way, the redemption that is being talked about when the Bible talks about redemption is to be purchased back from slavery. So now he's basically, oh, the Bible word for, you know, you know, is redemption. And that means to be brought back. Well, we're being brought back all the way back to a time where there wasn't poverty. See, so God wants you to be prosperous. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, they were thrown. And by the way, the word, the word Eden, all of Eden was not a garden. Mm-hmm. The Bible says the garden was the east part of Eden. The word Eden means a place of voluptuous living. Right. God wants his children living voluptuously. I got no problem with a basketball player driving a Rolls Royce. I got no problem with a baseball player flying in an airplane. We expect but wh- that. We expect that. Why Come can't on. a child of God have that? Come on. So here comes Jesus. And my Bible says all things work together for good. I, I get passionate about breaking the curse of poverty. Yeah, I, I and, and they're mocking Jesus, and they see a thorn bush. That thorn bush, God cursed the land with thorns and thistles. We're supposed to be living in a land of milk and honey, but because of Adam, as you said before, the land no longer was yielding milk and honey. Now it was a land of thorns and thistles. Those thorns are a symbol of debt. In Hebrew, of debt, poverty, and lack. Uh, Right. Uh Uh-huh. Which Hebrew word are you talking about again? And so here they come with Jesus. They see the symbol of debt, poverty, and lack. In mocking Jesus, they build a crown out of these thorn bushes. They take that crown and press it into the brow of Jesus. Now, God said to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, Come on, teach. Every, no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you sweat, you're never going to get ahead because I'm not Jehovah Jireh anymore. But here comes Jesus, and they take that, that curse of poverty and lack, press it into the brow of Jesus. We're cursed by the sweat of Adam's brow. Those thorns pierce the brow of our Savior, and the curse of poverty has been broken. There you go. See, because Jesus had a crown of thorns on his head, that means you can be wealthy and rich and prosperous and drive a stretch limo. See, that's why that happened. And we're reconnected to Jehovah. Our, our Jireh, our provider, by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, now this is so vital here, Pastor Lee. I, I can go forever, and we're going to have to take a break and come right back. But that's why it says, he became poor that you might become come rich. No, I think this is actually, that's backwards. You stay poor, and you send your money in to buy the product from Larry Huck and Paula White so that they can become rich. Listen to it just a little bit more. 
Your victory is secured by knowing your place, position, and possession bought for you at Calvary's Cross. Once again, here's Paula and Pastor Larry Huck with more on The Seven Places Jesus Shed His Blood. You better get up and call the toll-free number. Seven places Jesus shed his blood. If you want dominion, you want authority, you want to break the spirit of poverty, sickness, disease, generational curse, and what God really did for you on Calvary, my CDs and teaching, along with Dr. Larry Huggs, five CDs, in-depth teaching with the book that goes in detail about the seven places that Jesus shed his blood to give you victory, which means you're a conqueror, you're an overcomer in all things. Go to the website, write the PS box or call the toll-free number for your ministry gift of $35 or more. Now, I'm going to give these quickly because we've got to get through them, and really, people need the product. That's the bottom line. Yeah, people need the product. That's the bottom line. Let me back that up again. Quickly, because we've got to get through them, and really, people need the product. That's the bottom line. You you just can't get it in one setting because when you begin, Paula, it's the truth that'll come and set you free. Right. The truth you understand. They've got to get the product. Yeah, they just got to get the product. Yeah, so yeah, all of that was to document that uh, when we're dealing with false teachers like Paula White, Joel Osteen, and others, that contrary to the claims of those defending them, uh, the claim of false teacher is not, well, it isn't made against Paula White without justification. It's made against Paula White with extreme justification. Now, I want to just answer this this other question real quick and come back to the statements made by Brian Head Welch. Are those who are teaching false doctrine in the church the cancer, or are those who are pointing out and warning against the false teachers the cancer? That's the question. That's the question. And again, we can't answer this question Subjectively, we must answer it objectively, which means we're going to need to look at two passages of Scripture. They're both long, and I'm going to point some things out along the way. That would be the epistle of Jude itself. It's only a chapter long, as well as Second Peter chapter 2, both of which were referenced by Shai Lin in his fine uh, song that he, uh, that he recorded and put out there uh, you know, for all of us to hear. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to start in Jude um, verse 1, and I'm going to point something out here. Um, pay close attention. Jude is a good guy. Okay, And what I mean by that is Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. And despite the fact that he's the half-brother of Jesus, that's not the appeal that he makes. In fact, I, I, he's, he calls his own brother the Lord. And so it's important to understand really how humble Jude here is because he doesn't play the, oh yeah, Jesus is my half-brother card. No, far from it. And so notice, because he's the good guy, notice what he's doing here, and then ask yourself this question, is Jude a cancer in the church because of what he's doing? So with that, we will read Jude verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny 
our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment in the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Notice Balaam, again, this is a guy who was paid to falsely prophesy for money. He was paid for this. And and, uh, uh, these are people who, for the sake of gain, you know, they abandon themselves uh, to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now I'm going to point this out here. Um, if we were to believe the statements of, well, men like Brian Head Welch, we must conclude that Jude here, because he's warning about false teachers in the church, and it's just just running them running them down and flapping his mouth. Well, then Jude is the one who's the cancer, right? No, he's not. The ones who are the cancer in the church are the false teachers. Jude is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God breathed. This is a God breathed text. So, that being the case, Jude is not the cancer, the false teachers are. And those similarly today who are pointing out the false teachers and doing so objectively with an open Bible and demonstrating what their teachings, that their teachings are not in accord with Scripture, they're not a cancer in the church. They're doing what Scripture says to do. Yeah, see, see what I'm saying here? So let me continue, though. Uh, Jude 14. Now, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such ungodly ways and all, and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers or malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain an advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Who is it that causes divisions according to this passage? It's the scoffers. It's the false teachers. It is these who cause divisions. They are worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show 
and others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. So according to Jude, the ones who are teaching false doctrine are the ones who are causing division and causing problems within the body of Christ, not those who are pointing out the false teachers. Second Peter chapter 2, another passage referenced by Shailin in his fine song, says this, But false, pe- uh, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now notice Paula White, in the section that I played for you, she denies that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. I think that Second uh, Peter chapter 2 comes into play here, don't you? Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That's what we saw with Larry Huck and Paula White in their false teaching. They were exploiting with you with false words and selling you a product because they're exploiting you in their greed. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially of those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glory, glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. Now, notice here that Peter, this is, you know, the guy who walked on the water, Peter, who denied our Lord Jesus and then was restored by Jesus, that Peter, the Peter who performed miracles, notice that he's pointing out false teachers, and he's saying of the false teachers that they are blots and blemishes in the church. Now, if we were to follow the logic of such men as Brian Head Welch, we'd have to conclude that Peter is a cancer, and that Peter is a blot and blemish for pointing out these false teachers. Ah, but see, Peter was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was he not? They, the false teachers, are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm, 
For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it will have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is what Scripture says regarding the false teachers. And it's the false teachers who are the blots, the blemishes, and they're the ones that are the cancer not those who are pointing out their false teaching because if it was the false it was the ones pointing out their false teaching who were the cancer in the church well then we must conclude that peter the apostle peter and the half brother of jesus that would be jude well that they're blots and blemishes and that they're the cancer in the church and they need to stop flapping their mouth and understand these heretics love jesus and that nobody's perfect doesn't make any sense when you put it that way does it Right, because it's the false teachers who are the cancer, not those who are pointing them out. This is what Scripture says, and this was inspired by God the Holy Spirit. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Two good sermons to end off today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Don't want to miss them. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. If everybody had a nose across the USA, then everybody'd be served like California. You'd see them wearing their baggies, Warachi sandals too, a bushy, bushy bond Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air 
to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Oh, hey, I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Palm with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Going to end off Monday with a couple of good sermons to kind of cleanse our palate after all of the really awful, narcissistic, Bible-twisting and weird things that we got last week from our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. But let's do this right. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, we got two of them, uh, come to us. One from Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska. The other from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. The first one, uh, again, uh, dare I say it, is somewhat prophetic, although I'm not claiming that Kuhlman has any prophecy skills. It's just he's very good at reading the handwriting on the wall, and he'll lay it out for you. The uh, The name of the first sermon is entitled, Suffering for Christ's Name, and it, the uh, biblical text that he will be preaching on is uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. The second sermon is Pastor Swirla's sermon, entitled, Either Way, You're Dead, and that's from Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 20. I'll read the gospel text before we listen to each sermon. Notice that each pastor will be preaching from a biblical text. We'll be pointing you to Christ and Him crucified. And in the case of Pastor Kuhlman, he'll also explain to you how this could also mean your own suffering. So let me go ahead and kill the music and let me read the gospel text 
uh, for the first sermon. That would be uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22, which reads, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and failing, I sorry, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do." The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was out without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the uh, street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. That's the text that forms the basis of this sermon entitled, Suffering for Christ's Name. Here is Pastor Brent Kuhlman. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As indicated before, the text is the reading from Acts. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, well, isn't this shocking? I mean, this is beyond belief, isn't it? You would have never done such a thing, would you? But the Lord Jesus does. After all, it's the Lord's cup of tea. And what is that? He converts your worst enemy. He calls your most hated foe to faith. Faith in Jesus. Saul also called Paul, Saul, of course, his Hebrew name, Paul, his Latin or Roman name, the big dog hater, the preeminent rabbi, is now a fellow believer in Jesus the Christ. Pastor Ananias of Damascus baptizes Saul, and that's water baptism, folks, in the triune name. 
in which Paul is given, or Saul is given, the Holy Spirit. Saul, yes, that's right, Saul is now a Christian, a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And in addition, the Lord Jesus puts Saul into the office of the Holy Ministry. (laughs) Doesn't that now make you extremely nervous? I mean, it's one thing to bring your adversary to faith, but it's quite another then to make him a pastor so that you have to listen to his sermons and then live under his pastoral care. (laughs) Because, after all, isn't this the man who did his darndest to harass, bully, and intimidate you and your fellow Christians in Jerusalem? Isn't this the man who devilishly did his best to destroy the mother congregation in Jerusalem and totally eliminate Christianity from his radar screen? Isn't this the man who consented to the murder of the well-liked and very much-loved pastor named Stephen? Yep, that's the man. Of course, you remember Saul didn't have a clue, and so the resurrected Lord Jesus sets him straight. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When you go after my Christians, you're going after me. When you hate my Christians, you're hating me. When you jail them, you're jailing me. I am Jesus, Saul, whom you are persecuting. And so now the Lord Jesus takes over, and he has good use for this man named Saul. Saul's mouth is no longer to be used to breathe out murderous threats against you and the Lord's church. Instead, Saul's mouth will now teach and preach, as the text says, that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of sinners, of whom he will later write, I am the worst. Saul is now, as the text says, the Lord's chosen instrument to carry Jesus' name before the Gentiles, that's you and me, and their kings, And before the people of Israel. That's absolutely amazing, brothers and sisters. This is an absolute miracle. This is all the Lord's doing. It's all the Lord's giving. Unbeliever and Christian hater, Saul, a Christian, brought from darkness to light, from death to life, from unbelief to faith. As a believer, now Saul is a new creation, a believer who is called by Jesus to be a preacher as well, who preaches Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of all sinners, and you as well. What will this being a Christian and a Christian preacher bring now to Saul? Accolades? Attaboys? Oh, good boy, Saul, good boy. Wealth? Worldly success? I mean, isn't that how it goes, especially in America? Become a Christian, we are told. Ah, Become a Christian. And then proclaim Jesus as the Christ. And what will you get? You'll get healthy, wealthy, prosperous, successful, beyond belief. Right? That isn't how it goes. Listen to what Jesus says in the text. I will show the Christian and the pastor, Saul, how much he must suffer for my name. Did you hear that? Are you you still awake? Christian preacher Saul will now suffer. For what? 
for believing in Jesus and for preaching Jesus. And boy, did he suffer. He describes a bit of his suffering in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 through 12. He says he was arrested, he was incarcerated, he was flogged and exposed to death again and again. Eight floggings altogether. Five whippings at the hands of the Jewish rulers and three beatings with rod irons by the Roman authorities. That's strange. The one by the Roman authorities. Why? Because Saul was a Roman citizen. And Roman law protected Roman citizens from being flogged. But... Roman law was suspended in Saul's case because he was a a Christian and because he preached Christ. And now the law no longer applied to the Christian. Saul had lost his rights. I'd better get back to 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 and Paul's lists of suffering for Jesus' name. He says, once I was stoned, he declares, and three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea exposed to the sharks. I've been constantly on the move, he says. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger of my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, in danger, and this is interesting, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have hungered and I have thirsted and I have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, Paul says, I daily face the pressure of my concern, my beloved concern for all the churches. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 12, And there was also given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Christian preacher Saul faced all kinds of hardships, prison, and if tradition is correct, he was most likely martyred, made shorter by a head while he was in Rome. Why? I'll tell you why. For being a Christian and for preaching Jesus and doing it, as the text says, quite convincingly. Yes, the text says Saul grew more powerful in his preaching and teaching from the Scriptures. He, said, he, he baffled the Jews, as the text says, living in Damascus by proving from the Scriptures that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Now, for the first time in his life, Saul knew what and who the Old Testament was all about. The Old Testament is fulfilled in the Good Friday death and Easter morning resurrection of the preacher from Nazareth named Jesus. He's the Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh, who alone atones for the sin of the world, the shedding of his divine blood. Now, brothers and sisters, as Saul boldly and unabashedly confesses, preaches, and teaches Jesus as the Christ, the Savior from all sin and for every sinner from the Scriptures, the former persecutor is now the persecuted. The hunter is now the hunted. The golden boy of the bigwig politicians and spiritual gurus of the day is now the black sheep. And public enemy number one. His former friends are now his worst enemies. What did Jesus say? I will show him how much much he must suffer 
for my name. What are we to learn from all of this? Uh, Do you even want to learn anything? Do you even care? I hope you do. For there is much to learn from Acts 9 and the miracle of Saul's being converted by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Christian faith. First, what Saul preached is right. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Just like Peter in Acts 10.43, where Peter said, All the prophets testify about him, the crucified and risen Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Yes, forgiveness of sins is salvation. It's the whole salvation shooting match. Yes, Jesus is the only Christ, the only Messiah, the only Savior. There are no others. Did you hear me? There are no others. Jesus is the exclusive Savior of the world. Acts 4.12 clearly says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus. You remember Jesus himself preached in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus is not one way among many ways to God. He's the only way. Did you hear that? He is the only way. This is precisely why in the early church, Christianity was often called the way. Just like we heard in our text today from Acts chapter 9. Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the the way, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. The second thing to learn is this. Be prepared to suffer, to bear the cross. I'm quite serious about this. I'm not joking. It is what it is. Jesus said so. In Luke 9, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Did you expect anything else? I tell you the truth. You confess Jesus as the only way to God for salvation, and what will it get you? I'll tell you what it will get you. Ridicule. Scoffing. Quote the Bible to prove that Jesus is the Christ, and what will that get you these days? I'll tell you what it will get you. You will be given one of the most derogatory names that anyone can be given in the United States today. You know what that name is? Bible thumper. Bible thumpers are today's Neanderthals, Hicks, Hayseeds, Throwbacks, rubes, numbskulls, buffoons, ignoramuses, or as they say in Boston, chatterheads. And that's just the beginning. There, those, the ones I just mentioned, those are the nice labels. Those are just the nice names. But you who take the Bible seriously, who believe it to be God's word, 
and who confess Jesus only for salvation are now considered by many to be what? Extremists. That is now the buzzword these days among the elites and the know-it-alls of American society. I tell you that the self-appointed nobility of America maintain that it is just too dangerous for a civil nation to allow anyone to believe that this Jesus from Nazareth is the only true God. That this Jesus, that he's the only Savior. And that this Jesus is the only way to heaven. You Christians here today who take this so seriously, as if salvation is at stake, you are not to be tolerated anymore. The way people are simply way too fanatical. The royalty of America contend that the way people, you Christians, are overly and overtly extreme, not only with regard to Jesus and salvation, but also in other beliefs. You know, don't you? Don't you? It goes like this. You Christians foolishly believe that Adam and Eve were real historical people. You actually believe that Jonah literally was swallowed by a whale and that three days later he was vomited on the shore. You really and truly believe that Peter, as you heard from the gospel today, caught exactly 150 fish. And that Jesus was really there, and that Jesus invited his disciples to have breakfast with him. We all know that rational and sensible people believe that these stories are just myths and allegories. Don't you know that? What's your problem? But you know what really takes the cake, you Christians? What really chaps our hides is that you Christians insist that marriage can only be between a man and a woman. And that the massive tissue inside a woman is a baby that must be protected. All this proves that you are just a bunch of religious what? Hmm? Extremists. And society cannot exist with extremists who make such assertions. I'm not making this up. You may be laughing at it, but this is the truth. Let me give you an example. Recently, an army training instructor listed evangelical Christians and Roman Catholics as examples, as examples of religious extremists or terrorists in a PowerPoint presentation. He lumped them together with the KKK, Hamas, and Al-Qaeda. What's the implication? That's a no-brainer. Christians who take Christianity seriously are not to be tolerated anymore. So what am I telling you this morning? This is what I'm telling you. You, too, like Saul, may soon learn to suffer much for being what? A Christian. You may learn in the next few years that the call by Jesus to be a Christian is a costly one. God literally took Saul's life away from him. Saul's name, his standing in his family, the standing in his country and the world and his reputation, all were taken away from him. He had no control. So much so 
that for a while he was what? A blind beggar who had to be led by the hand and told by the Lord where to go. And eventually he lost his life, brutally murdered in Rome, his head chopped off. Brothers and sisters, your suffering for Jesus' name may come in the form of discrimination. Confessing Jesus, who he truly is, and what his word truly teaches, may someday cost you your job. You may even lose your friends, and perhaps even the very closest members of your own family. Your children could even be taken away from you. You may even lose your freedom, your freedom to speak, your freedom to assemble, and your free freedom to exercise the way. And I hope this doesn't happen. I pray it doesn't happen. But your life may be even taken away from you. Saul lost everything, and you too may lose everything. But like Saul, you too gain everything, or what is most important. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, Paul said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that is based on the law, but having a righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now get a load of this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share, are you listening? And may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that if possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Saul's call to faith was a call to bear the cross, and so it is for you called to be Christians in holy baptism. Saul learned to suffer for Christ's name, and you will too if you haven't already. Life as a Christian in this country has been relatively easy and peaceful for a long time, but I believe that that time is most likely over. Christ's enemies and your enemies are baring their teeth. They are showing their fangs. They are extending their claws. It is very popular these days to badmouth and persecute Christ and his body, the church. It's all the rage. And if you haven't seen this, you will. The late Christopher Hitchens and his friend Richard Dawkins make Jesus, Christianity, and Christians their scapegoats for all that is wrong and evil in the world. If these two men had their way, Christianity and you Christians would be eradicated from the face of the earth. And they're not the only ones who believe that. For example, two years ago, the MSNBC host, Lawrence O'Donnell, any of you have seen him? Lawrence O'Donnell went on one of his anti-Christianity and hate speech rants. It went like this, and it applies to us here at Trinity Because we heard the reading from Revelation 5 today, and we really believe it to be true. O'Donnell categorically declared, are you listening now? O'Donnell categorically declared that the book of Revelation is a work of fiction that portrays a truly vicious God. 
And then he pontificated, quote, No half-smart religious person actually believes the book of Revelation, end quote. And he couldn't stop because he was on a roll. You know how that goes. And so he infallibly declared, God is a malicious torturer and mass murderer beyond Hitler's wildest dreams, end quote. Yes, confessing Christ comes with a cost, suffering in many ways for his name. But I tell you, do not despair. Do not give up because Jesus is the Lord. He is the Savior, Savior for you just like he was for Saul. And the word of the resurrected Lord will continue to be preached and bear much fruit, especially as it and the Lord's Christians are persecuted. Because the power of Christ's resurrection and his resurrection forgiveness will be fully revealed on the last day. And he will raise you from the dead and give you eternal life. I tell you again, Jesus is the Lord. He is the Christ. I tell you, he is in control. And he reigns even when it looks like he isn't. So, finally, let's dare, shall we? I mean, let's push the envelope. (laughs) At the risk of being labeled a Bible thumper, a half-smart ignoramus, an extremist, or suffering something worst, Let's together give our hearty amen to the new song from the book of Revelation in chapter 5. Now, I'm going to read it, and I want you to give your amen. Here it goes. You, Christ Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen. 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 In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Sermon number two comes to us uh, from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California, Pastor William Swirla. And his sermon entitled, Either Way You're Dead, the gospel text for which uh, this sermon is preached from, is uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 20, which reads, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Um, Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And now here's Pastor Swirla and his sermon entitled, Either Way, You're Dead. In the name of Jesus. Here again a verse from our gospel reading this morning. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So either way, you're dead. Either you fall on Jesus in broken-hearted, empty-handed, beggarly repentance, or you get crushed by the weight of your own salvation crashing down against the resistance of your own self-justification. But either way, you're going to be broken when you encounter Jesus. Either way, you're dead. Jesus told a parable against the unbelief of religious Israel. A man planted a vineyard and he led it out to some tenant farmers who were supposed to tend it, take care of the land, raise the crops, and at the appointed time, give a share of the harvest back to the landlord. He sent a servant to collect, and that servant was beaten and sent away empty-handed. He sent another servant, and that servant was mocked and treated cruelly and scorned. And again, sent away empty-handed. And he sent a third. And this time they wounded him. They beat him physically and they threw him out of the vineyard. And finally, he sent his son, his beloved son. And they took one look as the son came to the gate of the vineyard. And they said, aha, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. By the way, the plan isn't entirely half-baked. If the man dies and leaves no heirs, the land goes to the tenants. They had a plan. So let's stop here for a moment and consider what's going on. What sort of tenants are these? They're living by the good graces of another who asks nothing more than a reasonable share of the produce of the land. Is this any way to treat a man's servants, to beat them and to mock them and to ridicule them? Is this any way to treat the man's son, his beloved son, literally to drag him out of the vineyard that he owns and kill him? Is this any way to get title to the inheritance legitimately? You know, the story seems so over the top. It's surreal. It's nothing like other Jesus' other parables. Those kind of make sense. Seed in the soil, yeast in the dough, mustard seeds, that kind of thing. This one is kind of out there. It's over the top. How could anybody reasonably act this way? And yet, amazingly, this is exactly how religious Israel behaved. When Jesus said it wasn't fitting for a prophet to die outside the city gates of Jerusalem, he wasn't kidding. He was referring to all the prophets that God had sent to Israel who were despised, rejected, scorned, killed. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about this. They suffered mocking and scourging and even chains 
and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering over deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. According to legend, Jeremiah was stoned to death. According to legend, Isaiah was sawn in two in a hollow log. And the list goes on and on and on. And all of this at the hands of their own people. To understand this, to get a grip on what's going on here, you need to understand that the word of God is always rejectable and rejected. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Christ came to his own, his world, and his very people did not receive him. The rejection of the prophet is the rejection of Christ. Christ who was on their lips. Christ who was the word they proclaimed. Christ whose lives they represented and typified. In other words, the prophet's bore the death of Jesus in their own bodies. They exhibited the death of Christ. The rejection they experienced was not theirs, it was Christ's. The scorn they received was not theirs, it was Christ. The death they received was not because of who they were, but because of whom they represented. Christ was the target. Remember that. To be baptized is to be a target. Because you also reflect Christ. The devil, the world, our sinful flesh, they all want Christ dead. And like the son, the beloved son in the parable, Christ goes out from the father, the beloved son of the father, sent by the father to the vineyard that God had planted, his Israel, looking for the fruits of faith and repentance, and he's cast out and crucified by the very tenants that God put there in the first place. At our Good Friday service in the evening, you're going to hear the traditional improperia, the reproaches, in which God laments over his people, his Israel. It is the broken heart of God as he considers how his son has been treated by his people. Micah 6, thus says the Lord, What have I done to you, O my people, and wherein have I offended you? Answer me, for I've raised you up out of the prison house of sin and death, and you have delivered up your Redeemer to be scourged, for I have redeemed you from the house of bondage, and you have nailed your Savior to the cross, O my people. And then the prayer of the church, Holy Lord God, holy and mighty God, holy and most merciful Redeemer, God eternal, leave us not to bitter death, O Lord, have mercy. Again, says the Lord, what have I done to you, O my people? Wherein have I offended you? Answer me, for I have conquered all your foes. And you have given me over, and you've delivered me to those who persecute me. For I have fed you with my word, and I've refreshed you with living water. And yet you have given me gall and vinegar to drink, O my people. And again the prayer, Holy Lord God, Holy and Mighty God, 
holy and most merciful Redeemer, God eternal, allow us not to lose hope in the face of death and hell. O Lord, have mercy. And then a third time, thus says the Lord, what have I done to you, O my people? Wherein have I offended you? Answer me. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for you? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad, my people? Is this how you thank your God, O my people? And once more, holy Lord God, holy and mighty God, holy and most merciful Redeemer, God eternal, keep us steadfast in the true faith. O Lord, have mercy. Some people mistakenly hear those reproaches as an indictment of the Jewish people. They seem to be falling out of favor these days. You don't hear them much in churches anymore on Good Friday. You will hear. They're not against the Jewish people. They're against Israel wherever Israel is, including the church. And while they certainly address Israel, they also address us as the church, too, because it's our sin and our refusal to be the people of God that put Jesus on the cross, as much as Israel's rejection. In fact, you might say this, that Israel's rejection was part and parcel of our salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rejected rock of Israel becomes the cornerstone and capstone of the salvation of the world, including yours. God takes the worst that the world can throw at him and his son, the crucifixion of his only son, his beloved son, and he makes out of that crucifixion the most ultimate good that there is. Your salvation, your life, your forgiveness, your freedom. We don't really get this parable or the reproaches of Good Friday if we don't also see in ourselves those wicked tenants who beat the servants and killed the son. Because we do that too. You and I, we do that. We do it in all the ways that we reject the word. Whether it's by not hearing it, not learning it, refusing to be instructed by it, not inwardly digesting it, not taking it to heart. When we make worship and the sacraments something optional, something secondary in our lives, when those inspired and inerrant scriptures just sit dusty on the shelves because we haven't bothered to take and to read. We despise the word and heap stones on the heads of the prophets when we ourselves refuse that word of forgiveness and absolution, and instead we try to assuage our own guilt and atone for our own sins by our own self-justifications, we despise the word and we crucify Christ all over again when we add something to what Jesus has done, even the slightest little religious thing, as though Jesus didn't mean it when he said, it is finished. In the parable, the landowner evicts the tenants and he gives the vineyard to others. At one level, Jesus is talking about the land, the land that Israel occupied, the land that the sons of Abraham no longer have and never will. No amount of political force or military might will restore the land. It was taken away 
and given to others. At a deeper level, Jesus is talking about the mystery of the kingdom, the stewardship of grace that was entrusted to Israel as God's chosen people, but was given to another to be steward, the church, a mixture of Jew and Gentile, into which you each have been baptized. You are the new tenants, not by your doing, but by God's baptismal grace and mercy in Jesus. You are heirs, not by your doing, but by the death of the Son on the cross. And that's the twist in the parable. The death of the Son, the heir, becomes the source of life for the world. The death of the Son grants the inheritance. The death of the Son is the forgiveness, the life, the salvation of all. There is no neutrality with Jesus. There's no middle position, no comfortable place where you can keep Jesus at arm's length and say, he's an interesting person in history. No. As Simeon said prophetically the day that he held 40-day-old Jesus in his arms, this child is set for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. It's either faith or it is unbelief. That's all there is when it comes to Jesus. Faith or unbelief. You either fall on Christ by faith with your sin, your brokenness, your lostness, your doubts, everything. Take up your cross like Simon of Cyrene and follow right behind him to your death. Or you are crushed by the sheer weight of judgment coming down against your own self-righteousness. But either way, you're dead. The Apostle Paul experienced this in his own life. You heard, you heard it, and I'm glad there was a slightly extended reading because you heard more of it. He had been trained as a Pharisee. The very people against whom Jesus spoke this parable, and they knew it. He had been at the head of his class at the seminary, the best rabbi to be. He had mastered this religion of righteousness under the law. He says, as pertaining righteousness to the law, he was flawless. He got it. He did it. He walked the walk. He talked the talk. He did what the Torah told him to do. And yet he says this, and listen to it carefully. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. To hell with all that religion, he says. It means nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, perfect in the sense of complete, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Resurrection to eternal life in Christ awaits you. That's the goal. Press onward toward that goal. The way a runner runs the race, not looking down at his feet to see how he's running, not looking over his shoulder behind him to see where he's been, The past is gone, but looking forward, straight ahead to that finish line and the prize, death and resurrection to eternal life in Christ. Fall on Christ the rock and he will forgive you. Fall on Christ the rock and he will save you. Fall on Christ the rock and he will raise you from the dead to eternal life. Amen. Good stuff. Can't beat good, exegetical, Christ-centered, cross-focused, biblical preaching. Now can you? There's nothing quite like it. So what do you think? Would love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>